Have you ever been pepper sprayed by police for no reason? Have you ever witnessed your friend get tased for calling out an act of police brutality? A former athlete has had both happen to him, and he has a message for athletes who are diving into the civil rights arena. This is Warming the Bench. Welcome back to Warming the Bench. This is your host, Dan Tran, on his uh, cross-country tour, unintentional cross-country tour because of COVID, broadcasting from California today, and we have a huge show for you, so stick around. Now, even with sports seemingly teetering between returning and going into year-long hiatus, athletes are finding a way to impact the country. With protests demanding equal treatment of blacks, athletes have stepped up and used their collective voices to spread the message. But this is not the first time athletes have been called on to do it. Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, Tommy Smith used their respective platforms to bring attention to the mistreatment of the black community. Just like Colin Kaepernick, Maya Moore, LeBron James, and Bubba Wallace are following in their footsteps. Now, a tilt poll taken from December 2018 to August 2019, 53.9% of you thought athletes should speak out on political issues and not just stick to sports. So what is the role of the black athlete in civil rights today? We have a former D1 football player here to talk about how he thinks they should approach affecting positive change, discuss his own run-in with violent law enforcement, and how attending a historically black university shaped him into who he is today. Joining us today, a Wish TV reporter. He is also a former Texas Southern running back. And a alumni of USC, everybody give a warm welcome to Randall Newsom. How you doing, Randall? Hey, man, what's up? My guy. <laughs> we were talking uh, we were we were talking just the other day and I was like, Man, I gotta get this guy on my podcast. He's done so much. He's so accomplished. I'm just a regular guy here trying to make it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Randall, uh, I'm gonna ask you a question. What is the activity you miss the most since quarantine? I probably have to say, uh, as you know, I have a little baby girl who will turn one in August. Um, I think I was looking forward to going home and uh, celebrating with family for her first birthday. And it uh, looks like that's going to have to be virtual now. So, I mean, like a lot of other things, you know, it could be worse. But, um, you know, that's one of those things. I'm like, man, that would have been really cool to celebrate with family in person. But, of course, as you know, Texas is a little, uh, little out of control right now. <laughs> I, I hear you, man. I, I went back to California to uh, hang out with my family, and then cases started spiking a little bit, and I'm just like, ah, made a mistake, yeah. didn't I? <laughs> right. right, right. And, you know, of course, us both um, being uh, USC homies, uh, you know, I also was looking forward to, you know, Going back to California, just doing, you know, just traveling in general. I think that's one of the things that um, I took for granted uh, before all this stuff hit was just the ability to just hop up and go somewhere, you know? So, yeah, I miss that too. Yeah, it's just kind of restricted now. You know, we don't get to have those those quick little freedoms that we used to have, you know, just find a flight and, and go, you know? You don't really have that right now. But I'm looking forward to when that comes back, whenever that may be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think a lot of people are. Uh, speaking of things that are coming back, NFL, college football, what do you think? Are they coming back? Ooh, I don't know. Because um, one thing about football and um, 
you know, obviously I played, my brother played. One of those things is, I mean, that's contact sport. You know, as opposed to maybe some other sports where you might not have to, you know, closely contact people as much. But, I mean, we're talking about a game where you tackle people and, you know, you run into people full speed and there's a lot of grappling between the O-line and the D-line. And um, I don't know. And especially, you know, in, in close quarters, we sit in close quarters with our, our, our fans and the fans and everything. I'm just like, ooh. I don't know, man. Um, obviously, we'd love it. You know, we're both college football fans, so we'd love for it to come back. But I don't know. It's not really looking good to me with cases kind of up and down. You got players getting it, and, you know, I don't know. I think at this stage we're going to just have to see kind of play it by ear type of thing. Like, I think if the curve flattens heavily between now and then, we could see a season, but – Right now, I don't know. It's not really looking that great to me. When it comes to football, you literally have 300-pound men inches from each other's faces. That's definitely not social distancing, right. is it? <laughs> and they're putting, they're putting their hands on each other every single play. So <laughs> I, uh, I don't mm, – that's one of the most that's – a, that's a sport where you get real personal. <laughs> yeah, no, what so – so when you heard the, the news about Clemson and how many cases they saw surging, what was your first reaction when you heard that? When you think about guys in great shape and young, it's the opposite of what everybody kind of thought coming out the gate. You thought old people were, were going to be more of the victims and people with all these conditions. And, and you're finding out that that's not necessarily the case. I'm kind of thankful that people kind of got to see that young, very, I mean, really in-shape guys uh, could get this virus, and it could spread, and it could pass along. Some of them, you know, I think I know in some cases like Alabama, I know they went, um, some of those guys went home, came back, and tested positive. So, but it just it goes to show you a lot of these guys, especially at the top programs, come from all over the country. And then those places that are now hotspots now, I mean, there's a lot of recruits that come out of these areas. You know, you're talking about Texas, you're talking about Florida, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of college football cream of the crop that come out of those hot spot states. And you know, they're probably just thinking, you know, they're hanging around their family and friends and they come back with COVID-19. Next thing you know, their roommates, um, they're, you know, their close teammates have it. You know, uh, guys that are in the huddles together. I mean, like I said, it's a, it's a game where we're in close quarters all the time. So, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's really risky when it comes to football, especially college football, because even more so, you got more guys, even even so than the, um, the NFL uh, team. So you have more guys around each other, and then they're around students around all these uh, these huge campuses. So I mean, you just got so many chances for this thing to get worse if you say let's have college football season. Right. Right. When you have people catching COVID and the fans are like, "Listen, this is just." getting ahead of the curve. This is, this is getting herd immunity before the season starts. This is a good thing. When, when you hear mental gymnastics like that from people, what, what's your like reaction to that? Well, my reaction is this, especially now as a person who's had a close encounter, my, uh, my little brother, as you know, played college football and he got it and it was not pretty. He hadn't had asthma problems. He's, uh, he's asthmatic, but he hadn't had asthma problems in quite a long time. But it's like when this virus hit him, everything kind of impacted him heavily. He was at a point where he couldn't breathe. 
And, you know, that that's a scary thing for those who know people with asthma or who have asthma. It's a scary thing to not be able to get oxygen. He was kind of in that mode, and he's freaking out for the first time in a long time, right? He's like, oh, my gosh, what's happening to me? And they rush him to the hospital. Um, he's in quarantine, uh, kind of waiting for two hours for them to figure out what's going on. He's got all pretty much all the symptoms. And matter of fact, I think it took him about three weeks to fully recover. Uh, a week and a half to two weeks out of that three weeks, he couldn't taste or smell. God, that's so, so scary. This, yeah, that's scary, man. This thing is real. And I think for some of us, I guess it just has to hit you right in the mouth or in in your front door. It has to it has to kind of right come up and meet you for you to really understand how uh, serious this is. Because I mean, if my brother can get and even even him. He even admitted, he was like, man, I honestly, I took the precautions, but I really just never thought I was going to get it. And I was just like, well, I guess we all know now. Like, we all know that this thing could come and reach you and touch you. And a lot of times, what I'm finding out as, as, as a member of the media and also just, you know, knowing people, nobody ever knows where they got it or how they got it. I think, I think that's the scariest yeah. thing is that we can't track it. Like there's, it's like really yeah. hard to track the source of yeah. all of your infection. Right. You go back and you're thinking, okay, I went to, I mean, even me trying to track my brother's last move before um, he found out he had the virus. He was in two different airports twice. He went to two protests. He has mask on, but you just never know. And, I mean, after a while, we started trying to track him. We're like, grocery store. I mean, there were so many different places. I'm like, there's no way we're going to know where he got this thing from. Yes. Like, uh, we'd, have have to pop, we'd have to pop up the phone and be like, hey, I'm COVID. Like, I mean, that's the only way you'd really know, you know, when this thing um, gets to you. So, I don't know. I think that's even more reason for people to be extra cautious and safe when making all these decisions about opening up. I know it's. I know it's frustrating for a lot of people. I know it's annoying to have to wear a mask and everything, but I mean, I'll take annoying over a loved one lost. And you were talking about this, uh, this COVID-19, how it's non-discriminatory. I would say that's one thing that we can't say about the United States just in general. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, I think now more than ever, people are kind of seeing it because it's really in your face, but for those of us who are people of color, I think we have a different lens that we've kind of been seeing this for a really long time. I'm hoping that this is a turning point where people are just like, you know what, we should all be sick of this. And, and hopefully more and more people are seeing this and like, no, this isn't okay. And there's systems in place that need to change and tend to really put a spotlight on people of color in a negative way. I'm hoping that this will be a revolution. I, I hate that it had to come on the telling of people dying, a bunch of people, and it was just kind of George Floyd was kind of like the last straw for a lot of folks, but I'm really hoping that um, more people will start to listen again. I know we're in an age of social media where people talk first, and that's all they want to do. They just want to talk. They just want to be the first one to say something and be correct and their own way of thinking or confirm their own beliefs from when they were growing up instead of just really listening to somebody else and their, their perspective uh, on life. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people, even as a member of the media, like it's, sometimes it's really tough to hear people say some of those outlandish things and, and watch comments and 
people just really starting fights over social media rather than just trying to understand the man next to you. Yeah. And we, we talked before, you're a wish uh, TV reporter that's based out of Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. And uh, something really terrible happened uh, over there uh, in relation to the George Floyd, uh, in relation to Breonna Taylor, all those cases. What happened in Indianapolis that you had to cover? So um, in Indianapolis, um, uh, Drajon Reed uh, was uh, the young man's name. Uh, He was 21 years old, um, and he led officers on a high-speed chase. Not, not, still not quite sure what started that. I think it was just kind of reckless driving, and then they went in pursuit. Um, he was recording himself on Facebook Live uh, as all this was happening. Um, he gets to a stopping point where uh, I guess officers were still kind of after him, pulls over, uh, and he, he says, a few things, um, you know, somebody come get me and all these different kind of things that uh, it was kind of weird for me, honestly, because it didn't really indicate somebody who was really on the run from the police. It was kind of a, it was just kind of a weird exchange from him, him to Facebook Live. It seemed like he was calling, you know, kind of for attention. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the end result is what everybody knows about. He, he hops out of the car. Um, you hear officers in the background and all of a sudden you hear a lot of shots. Um, I mean, shot multiple times while he was running away. And uh, they're still investigating this case. So uh, the question is, he did have a a gun that I believe he owned legally. Um, The question is, is if he shot or not. But he was tased and then shot. So um, that is the that is the debate going on here between the family and uh, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police is did he fire? Because if he didn't, then that's gonna open up a whole another can of worms. And um, you know, it was already people were already dealing with the fact in the community that he had been shot so many times. Was, people call it overkill because he was shot that many times. Uh, his mom. Uh, couldn't even recognize his facial features. Uh, And that leads us into the comment that was made. Uh, One of the officers walks up and says, it looks like it's going to be a closed casket, homie. And um, and that's a quote. (laughs) Um, That was uh, was tough for a lot of people to hear because Facebook Live was still recording and captured that that comment. Um, I think that was really hard. Uh, for people to to hear that um, insensitivity on that level, well, uh, yeah. And I mean, this one, they know. This one, they know he's dead. Uh, it, so the yeah. thing for me, the thing for me, when I hear that, it's like there's a difference between gallows humor, which like that totally is not it. But there's a difference because like there's like coping mechanisms, right? When you're you know working in traumatic careers, like you know doctors policemen there there's like even journalism we have kind of like a gallows humor thing right because we have to you know separate ourselves from situation this is there's that and then there's what this officer did which is completely dehumanizing somebody just basically stripping them of your humanity in order to kind of justify this kind of treatment 
closed casket homie? Am I, what's the, how is that the first thing that comes to your mind when you see a dead person on the ground? I mean, mentally, obviously, the only thing I can think of is that maybe he's just, like you said, maybe he's just seen so much and positioned himself where he felt like they were on the right end of that shooting. But it doesn't justify those words coming out. And honestly, it's, it's crazy because had that Facebook Live not been rolling still, we wouldn't know that he said that. So it's just, it goes back to kind of like the integrity of it all. You know, what you do when nobody's really looking or watching. That's the part that I kind of struggle with as somebody who's also had an encounter uh, with law enforcement. That particular <laughs> law enforcement, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police, it is it's something to be said about the approach to to black people. Um, and there's something off there that maybe even deeper than we could get into on the podcast, but it's uh, it's, it's it's kind of a fear that they approach people of color with that is kind of it's off putting, honestly. Like I kind of see it in their eyes. It's like, wow, you really think somebody's threatening you right now? Just based off the color of their skin. Well, and then and then one thing about. Um, Black people, mannerisms, different things we do, we're very expressive people. And so a lot of times you, you might see a lot of black people, we talk with our hands a lot. We, I mean, we, you know, we move around a lot and we you know we're kind of expressive like that. And I think for some reason, um, there are people that are really threatened by that. I think it's just the whole persona, not even necessarily... Um, just the color of your skin, but I think, but I think that's a, that, I think that's a key role because a, a key factor, because I think they do see it, and they're like automatically on guard. I don't know if training can fix that. I don't know if um, if that can really change the way a person has been thinking for God knows how long. Yeah, you know, but I think there do there does need to be things in place because. It should be thoroughly investigated when an officer uses deadly force. No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. My issue with everything that I've seen from other officers is there's a, a serious lack of conflict resolution. There's a serious lack of understanding in the situation where you're like, okay, there's a difference between a guy who's running away from me and running towards me like i mean i remember being you were in school the I, I was all set for just sports i think we both were and um that was all we had our minds on and i remember standing behind annenberg the usc and i remember seeing a debate about tamir rice 12 year old tamir rice um for those who don't know kid that was shot in cleveland um, by officers because he had a BB gun. And I remember, I just couldn't get over the fact that people thought it was okay to debate on whether this kid deserved to die. 12, 12 years old? Like, come on. 12. I mean, that changed my whole perspective on what my purpose would be in journalism and storytelling. Because I just knew, I was like, we just need more voices. 
We need more voices speaking on behalf of these young men and women. And we also need to help bridge that gap because I know there are good people on the other side. You know, I know, I know there, I know, I know great officers. <laughs> like I was, one of my, one of my uh, little league coaches was a, was a police officer in Fort Worth. So I've known plenty of good officers in my life. I have a cousin that's an officer, you know, in uh, Arlington, Texas. And I'm just like, I know good ones, but I know that there's some guys out there that don't necessarily have a clear meaning on what it means to protect and serve. It's not okay to just pull a trigger and ask questions later. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's not. It's definitely not okay when you outnumber the man four to one. They already have the upper hand. It's like there. There's no like. Yeah. Where, where's the threat there? You know. Where, where, man, arms. I mean, I've seen. How many cases have we seen? Guys subdued by multiple officers. Um, guys with hands behind their back and still manage to get shot. Like it. It's baffling. It's crazy. It's traumatizing for those of us black men who were who who were put in a corner and had to have to talk with our parents about what you do when you get pulled over, what you do when there's an altercation with a, con- a conversation, every- a conversation that not everybody has with their child because they're not yeah. put in that situation almost daily. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had encounters way before anything happened up close and personal with police, but I've had encounters where um, being at Texas Southern, me and uh, a good friend of mine were driving back from uh, dropping a friend off and guys pulled us over and asked if we had guns in the car. We got our Texas Southern stuff on. <laughs> you know, like, like it's, it's crazy because that's the first thing you thought. You got guns in the car? No, we, like why would you? Why would you think that automatically? Might be police, might be some police back there, but we don't have no gun. But I mean, it's just there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack um, when it comes to systems that have been put in place to even make people think this way. I watched um, a documentary that I've been avoiding for the longest because I don't want to be angry. But uh, it's called Thirteen. Uh, Ava DuVernay. Uh, Yep, Ava DuVernay. So, I mean, you know, Ava hits you hard. So I was like, let me just make sure I'm in the right mental space to watch this. But, I mean, when I watched it, just when you, when we say when we say things like how deeply rooted and generations and generations have been taught one thing, I don't know how much you can really unlearn with a system that's in place right now because the system that was put in place a long time ago was not. <laughs> was not in favor of people of color. No, definitely not. But the the thing with the, the all this situation with, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, now it's Elijah McClain that is bringing everything yeah. to the forefront. But, you know, with all these stories out there, everybody's starting to rally around some reform or at least some form of protest against this, especially with, you know, all this going on. Black athletes have come to the forefront now, and they are kind of taking a leadership role in it, which they have been doing since basically, you know, black people have been playing sports because they, I feel like with black athletes, everybody looks to them as a great bridging point. We talked about, you talked about bridging points before. They are a great bridge because they are beloved by the black community and, you know, the white community for their athletic exploits. What would you say 
is the role of the black athlete in activism today? I think today it's probably more important than it's been in the last 20 years or so because this movement right here could actually change some things. Uh, I think what athletes have to do and make sure of is that they're informed first. So when you speak, you're speaking from a place of understanding, not just a place of, okay, you know, stop killing us. Yeah, that's what we all want. But, but we got we got to dig a little deeper than that. Um, you know, what, what systems do need to change? How do we get more people to vote? How do we get more people to understand who and what they're voting for? I think those are, there's, there's, it's more long game that we got to play with this thing. Like, it's not enough to just be an activist and, and be at a protest or two. It's not enough anymore. You know, now it's like, okay, real reform, real solutions, real conversations uh, between people of color and law enforcement. They could actually get us somewhere where we're not just arguing and say, okay, well, you know, he's right now. No, it's not about... It's not about who is right and who's wrong. It's about just that, right and wrong. It doesn't matter whose side is coming from. And I think athletes have to understand that you spend a lot of time, you know, perfecting that craft. And really understand, like, Colin Kaepernick, <laughs> I don't know if he knew that it would be like it is now. I don't know if he knew that he, would, he wouldn't be able to play ball um, when – when he first took that knee. But, you know, I think the platform that he had, he just felt like it was time to speak up. Yeah, I mean, how how, how unfair is that, though, where you're, you're saying that it's like, please don't kill me is not enough anymore? How messed up is that? Oh, oh it's, it's, it's all the way jacked up, man, but I'm so, I'm so at a point where I just really want to see real change that I know for a fact that stop killing us is not enough because somebody's going to justify why the shot was fired. Okay, so we need to get into why the shot was fired, and then we need to dig into well, why, like, why in that scenario did you feel threat versus let's resolve this? Because there's no resolution when somebody dies. It's not a resolution. It's a lot of people hurt. Yeah, problems problems are just beginning. Like once that happens, right? And so, and so I think before the trigger pull, that's where the that's like in the beginning. I was just when I first was seeing all this stuff going back to Trayvon Martin, it was just anger, right? You just you're just angry and frustrated, and why is this happening, right? But now I'm you know I've matured over the time, and and I'm and I'm thinking now I'm like, okay, how do we get that trigger to never be pulled? as much as possible, right? Like, that's that's now where my head's at with this thing is, how do we make sure that people think, at least think twice, at least, at very least, think twice. All right, so Muhammad Ali, yeah. John Carlos, Tommy Smith, people look at those people as heroes now because they look back, they, right. they think resistance, they think, you know, fighting against the machine, and they respect them because of that. But people don't realize that back then they were criticized and ostracized for their actions. Like, oh man, like in, at the time, I, do you think that's happening to Colin Kaepernick right now? Do you think in the future Colin Kaepernick will be looked at in those same terms? 
I hope so, and I hope it comes way before like you know a twenty year gap or whatever. You know, I hope I hope I hope we give that man his roses while he's here because it had to. I mean, like I said, I don't know if he knew that it was going to come down like it did, and he wouldn't be able to to play. I mean, and there's and you know we both watch the game. Like there's a lot of people not as good as Colin Kaepernick who are on NFL rosters right now. Uh, shout out! Shout out to Nathan Peterman. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of guys that not, there's a lot of guys that did not take their team to the Super Bowl that have NFL jobs right now. Like it's 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 baffling. Yeah, and you see, you know, all these athletes, even even white athletes, they're they're rallying around their teammates. And we have Ryan Tannehill coming out and speaking sure. up. We have uh, we just have these you know white teammates. They're like they're speaking out. They're actually taking a stand with their teammates. When you see that kind of thing, do you think that's enough? And what can their white teammates do to really support them? You know, it's crazy. It's kind of a similar response that I had to the younger athlete that's, you know, trying to get into activism, you know, during this movement. First of all, get informed. Make sure you're listening. It's fantastic to just be like, okay, I want to be a part. How do I help? But, but okay, really listen, really kind of dig into the history of what's happening. You know, um, even if it's just the city that you live in, you know, or the state that you live in or the region, like really dig into, if you really dig into the backgrounds and the stories of how these things kind of unfolded, you would understand where the frustration is coming from. And then, you know, then to me, your duty is then to help look for those solutions as well. That's how as a, as a, as a white person, that you really show solidarity. It's, it's cool to march, you know, but it's also just that. It's cool to march. Like, people are doing it right now because it's hot in some cases. I, and I do believe some people out there really want change. But to separate the people who are going to be spared the moment from the people who are going to really affect change in the long run, you're going to have to really look into the systems in place, the history, and really try to see what we can do right now to raise more awareness for how to make change. Like, what laws are in place? I mean, you know, I think it was uh, Stand Your Ground that Trayvon Martin was killed. Like, they justified that. That's all Stand Your Ground law in Florida. You know, it's those types of things that we have to be on it before those triggers get pulled so that we're not dealing with this on the back end of somebody's mother crying over their grave. God, yeah, you're, you know what I mean. Yeah, that makes that makes I total think, sense. I think, yeah, I think I think just white white people um, who are for the cause, because everybody's not. So when and when you see someone who is outright racist, if you see someone, even if they're a friend of yours, speak up, call them out. I'm not saying I'm not saying you got to disown people on the spot, but speak up. You see things going off that are wrong, speak up, speak against it. You know, I think that that's the part, you know, it's all well and good for people to say that they're they're with us and that they want to, to help. But really, listen, if you listen long enough, you'll understand how to help in your own way, whatever power that you may have. But it's just raising awareness for other people like you who didn't really know, you know, or chose not to know and now are choosing to be in the know. Because, I mean, this stuff... It's all on Google, right? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? like, <laughs> it's all out there. So, 
So, I mean, to, to say, like, oh, I didn't know, eh, well, you have, you have the ability to find out if you don't, if you didn't know. Yeah. So. No excuses I think now. Just, yeah, I think just, just get informed first uh, before you say, well, how can I help? I think get informed, understand what's happening, and you'll, I think the answers will be revealed to you as you become more knowledgeable about, I mean, because a lot of people, I mean, there's a section of, of people in this world that really think MLK fixed racism. Right? You know, <laughs> like, people think, like, MLK, I'm like, y'all forgot, MLK was assassinated, 38 years old, and his, he was stripped away from his family. And also, like, like to your point about Muhammad Ali and those guys who stood for uh, racial injustice, he was one of the most hated people in the country at one point. Like MLK, I think, what was it? Um, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, named him one of the most dangerous people in the country. This is Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> like, like peaceful, peaceful protest, you know, I have a dream, that guy. Most dangerous person in America. One of the most dangerous people in America, he was named. And this was in the newspaper. You yeah. know what I mean? So widespread, some people probably really thought that. And people just really forget that in those times, you know, in, in the, the history books, it, it almost seems like it was a nice death. This was not, like, this was not nice. Like, he's assassinated. And I don't know, we just, I, I think people are really selective about what they want um, you American history to look like. Yeah, I know it's you it's know. it's very it's very uh polished and whitewashed and it's yeah, just... real picky and shoot. Yeah. It's real picky. And I'm just like, yeah, y'all, we 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 might be great in some sense of the word, but <laughs> for a lot of people, great hasn't happened yet. Yeah, ain't that right. Um what you Yeah. You know? Yeah, true. When it comes to these sort of situations, people look to politicians to actually enact laws and pass things and actually, you know, make the change that people are demanding. Who do you actually think holds more influence? Is it these athletes or are, is it politicians? When it comes down to it, I think it depends on how deeply involved the athlete is. Because at the end of the day, that's money, you know, and money can do some things. You know, and they, they control a lot of the culture, so to speak, right? Like, as far as how people move, especially the younger generation. So they're influential as long as they're influencing people to take action rather than to just talk. It's, like I said, these conversations need to be had, so talking is imperative, but it's even more important to make sure there's a plan in place to take real action and make sure that people, young, you know, middle-aged, older, whatever, make sure that everybody's paying attention. So that if, if your plan is to make a change, at least you have some type of blueprint to follow. You know, it's not enough to just shout from the mountaintops, hey, hey, we need to change this. Okay, how? Right? Like, and I think the connection between politicians and athletes could be like a superpower, right? Like that could be something that's 
even stronger than either one could be separately. You know, but I think it's going to take these guys really being involved. And that's why I said, that's why my first thing was get informed so that you know who is calling what shots. Yeah. You know, like people get distracted by, you know, commander in chief and not realizing that your local and state guy makes a difference in those things. Support from, you know, the head man might be appreciated, but at the end of the day, separation between, you know, that the executive office, you know, and legislative, like people really, we glaze over that stuff in history, we memorize it and then we forget. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, those things are different branches for a reason. And as a people, it's like we have to understand how much of an impact we have and where our voices need to be heard. Not necessarily just shouting out into the atmosphere, like your voices need to be heard here and there. And that might be city, state, because those are the laws that we're following. Those are the laws that allow a lot of these things to happen. God, that's so true. Yeah, you talked about a situation where you uh, were faced with Indiana PD, uh, Metro PD. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I can jump into it real fast. So basically, I was at a day party um, here downtown Indianapolis. And um, me and my buddy, we decided we were going. He works for USA Track and Field. And uh, he's a guy, athletic, about 6'3" about two well now two fifty he put on a few. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> big guy. But you know, kinda like me. Wouldn't 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 harm a fly. So, you know, we just easy going guys. We just figured we'd go out and have a good time. What ended up happening was there was a fight that broke out of the day park. And seen a couple different types of fights, you know, so I know the difference between a fight that, oh, you know, they might just throw these couple people out and let everybody go back to partying. Yeah, this was not one of those fights. This was a fight that other people jumped in, and these other people jumped in, and all of a sudden the room was shaking. So I was like, okay, time to go. We end up heading out. Um, once it was safe to kind of move around, uh, we ended up heading out, and uh, police were coming in. We, we finally get outside, outside of the club we were at. Still daylight. We had some friends down the street. We're like, okay, well, we can link up with our buddies. And just, you know, the night doesn't have to end with that sour note. We can just, you know, head to the next thing. So... After a few moments outside, we heard a little bit more commotion out of kind of out of nowhere. And uh, all of a sudden, I saw a girl being held up by her neck by an officer. And I can't even describe how jarring that was to see a woman. She was small. And to be grabbed by her neck and held up in the air, I just don't know what, what could have caused that reaction from the officer. So our immediate reaction was, whoa, 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 that's too much, that's too much, that's too much. Right? And so shortly after that, uh, my buddy was with me while his body hit the ground. And I already gave you the description, about 6'3", at the time about 2.30. So something, whatever knocked him down had to be pretty strong, right? Shortly after that, I looked down, and he's shaking. I can tell he's being tased. And I'm, like, in shock, but I, I just screamed his name. And I look over 
to my left, and I said, oh, my God, what are y'all doing? And I immediately get pepper sprayed in the face. And how, did, and how, did, and how did that feel, by the way? Well, let, let the people know how being pepper sprayed feel. I don't know if you ever set your face on fire. But <laughs> that's probably the only thing I could think of to describe it. I mean, I don't know, like, I don't know, what, what else? Maybe, like, icy hot times a thousand, maybe? Oof. Like, and somebody just put it on your face. It was, it just felt like my face was, like, on fire. And I remember thinking, in the split second, all this happened really fast. In the split second, I keep thinking, okay, I've just been pepper sprayed. It hurts a lot. But if I make a wrong move, I might not make it out of this. Like, if I make the wrong move, no matter what kind of pain I'm in, this could end really badly for me if I make the wrong move. So I sat down. <laughs> I sat down right where I was, and I waited for an officer to come to me, walk me over to the curb. And I couldn't see anything, but that's what my buddy was. I saw later on the video. And I just kept rocking back and forth, sitting in place, and they put handcuffs on me. And I kept thinking, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And I just repeated myself. Like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And uh, I'm thinking, eventually, somebody's going to come over. And when all this dust settles, they're going to walk over to me and at least ask me what happened or at least tell me what I did. And neither one of them have they put us in a little holding area right there downtown. They put us in a van, and I'll never forget the last chance I probably had of anybody looking into what happened in the incident was when a lady officer asked, what did Blue Shirt do? And she was referencing me because I had a blue shirt on and a yellow jacket. One officer replied, I don't know, the door shut, and we were taken to jail. Jeez. So, so they don't even know, they don't even know what you did wrong. And yet you are detained and arrested. Yep. And sprayed. <laughs> <Both> sprayed. <sighs> Jesus. So I wait, find out the, the, the most anxious part of it is what are they going to say I did? Cause I know I didn't do anything. So what are they going to say? They have to have a reason to take me in, right? So when I go, I get the chance to finally look and we were processing fingerprints. I can squint and I can open my eyes at this point and I look over and it says resistance. And I'm, I, I'm even more confused because I'm like, resisting? Resisting who? Resisting what? When? Oh. But that's all it says, resisting. You were arrested for resisting somebody else getting choked out. Basically. <laughs> or letting somebody know I that they are choking somebody out. In a very violent manner. So I reacted to my buddy going down. I never touched him, never interfered with an officer. Um, and I thought, honestly, I actually thought that might be the charge because it was happening to him. You know, I just got resisting. So I think it's one of those, and the thing is, I'm a member of the media, so I've looked at a few police reports. You could get resisting for almost anything. You could get resisting almost for saying no <laughs> to an officer depending on Depending on the officer, right? So, I mean, in that moment, I was like, wow. They really slapped me with whatever they could think of. And they slapped and you with the most book. vague crime. Resisting. Yeah, vague, very, um, very discretionary. It's a, it's a crime that it's like, it's up in the air, basically. Like, it's up to them. And it justified them taking me to jail. 
So if you don't have anything, you got to put something down, right? So that, the only worst moment in that was when my buddy came out of the same processing room and he looked like he saw a ghost. And I'm like, bro, what's wrong? Because we're all thinking we got the same thing. And he says, bro, they gave me batteries and officers. It's a felony. And I was like, I was right there the whole time. What are you talking about? What do you mean they gave you batteries and officers? I said, bro, that's what it says. They gave me battery as an officer. Uh, we looked at that report, and it said that he bear-hugged <laughs> an officer. Now, a little context for that situation. He had a phone recording in his right hand. So he was actually just recording after the fight broke out and just, you know, just kind of moving on to the next thing, kind of just, you know, videoing himself. And he got that whole interaction on camera. Not, mistakenly, not even on purpose. It was crazy because I just don't understand how you could bear hug someone with one of your hands recording video. Facing, going towards your face. It seems like the rules of physics don't really jive with that description of the uh, <laughs> the uh, the crime, yeah. right? And I knew, and I was sitting right there all the time, man. Like, he never bear hugged anybody. If a guy like that bear hugs you, you're not, you're not getting out of it. <laughs> like, he had long arms. You know, he's a former track guy, high jump. And if he's bear hugging you, you ain't about to just get him, get, you know, turn around and put him in cuffs and face. So, but that's what officer says he saw. So, that justifies him tasing him and justifies them getting me for resisting in their eyes. My he- charges dropped almost immediately. A friend of mine who also works in the media made a call, and um, they looked into it and said, oh, okay, we're not charging them. Um, but they also tried to make it to where I couldn't testify on my friend's behalf, which was 10 kinds of messed up. But also being a member of the media, I wasn't supposed to make a big deal. I wasn't supposed to say anything unfavorable to the law enforcement officers. Meanwhile, I'm just I'm not understanding why trying to charge my friend with this felony. This, I mean, this is a guy who's never been in any type of trouble, including, you know, just like I have. And I'm just like, well, how could y'all try to ruin this man's life like this? Eight months, he was preparing to be in court and fight fight that charge. And they dropped it right before the court date. But, I mean, the, what it took his mom through, who had never had to, I mean, she was in New York, <laughs> and got here like a week less than a week later so just check on her son and sister was here and i mean they know him better than me and just like they can't be they got to be thinking how could this happen you know and the trauma that it takes you through and you can't help but think man the officers that did this they're not thinking like we're thinking they're not having to go through this type of trauma no, it's just going on about that. Yeah, it's just another it's just another day for an officer, apparently. Yeah. And um I think that's the hardest part for for us to kind of deal with even to this day, a year later, with you know, with the protests and everything going on. It's like, wow, I could have been hashtag easily before my daughter even entered this world. And it doesn't sit right with me. I'm 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 very grateful that it, it didn't go worse than it did, but at the same time, there's something to be said about why do I even feel that relief to be like, man, I'm glad I didn't get shot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
that that's crazy in itself to be like, wow, at least they didn't kill me. Yeah, and, they, and you're and supposed to be grateful person. about that too, right? I mean, I am, and that's that's, that's kind of twisted, right? Like I'm, I'm very grateful that I get to walk around and hold my daughter and and live, still go on with my life. Yeah, live, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, and a lot all, of people didn't get there. Yeah, it's like these 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 officers they're they're supposed to serve and protect the community. What are they serving and what are they protecting? You know, right. in that in that right. situation where they're trying to pin exactly. you with something that you didn't do. Right, and and I just don't understand the the, the moment that really kind of just messed with me is that nobody cared enough to find out what I did. They, they they were okay with me going to jail without clarity. You know, and that that was the most disturbing part of that whole thing. It does provide perspective for me. For a long time, I mean, did the right things. I was in sports for the most part. I came from a, a family who never had any type of encounters with the law, at least our media family. And so a person before that day could say, man, you've had it good. You know, you you've never been... You don't know what it's like to be harassed like that, and you know, officers trying to pin something on you, something like that. Because you know, you got it made. You know, I think we we present this image that we're kind of, I guess, untouchable to people because it's like, okay, you're good, you're a member of the group, but man, that day I was just a black guy. Man, that's a real, that's a tough reality that nobody, that not a lot of people really understand, like the 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 struggle in that identity, right? Yeah, and just, I mean, and just to know that there's not necessarily any safe haven for a black man in a country where things like this can happen with no explanation. I don't know. I just think we have to fight to continue those conversations and turn those conversations into real actions that can change how those types of scenarios play out. It shouldn't keep happening the way they're happening. I just hope that I hope that these conversations continue to build. I don't want them to tear people apart. I don't want them to make um, people who would like to be allies feel like they're outcasts because they don't know. Um, there's nothing wrong with Google. There's nothing wrong with asking friends about their own experiences. Don't ask them about <laughs> apply to black people. Don't don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Ask them about like 400 years of of injustice. Like, ask them about their own experience, because that that can help you relate to where they are now, and maybe where they've been as individuals. That's what I would say to people who are who are white trying to figure out how to maneuver through this as a friend, as an ally in this fight against injustice. I think that's where you start. Yeah. You know, really feel for where your friend is in. Like, have you ever, man, has that ever happened to you? Anything like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> like, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm, we, we've been friends for a while, I'm pretty sure you were surprised when, when I told you what was going on. Bro, um, like, yeah, like, you're not, you're not wrong, you're not wrong. It's like, when I, when you were telling me that story, um, I was like, what, right, Randall got in trouble with the law? Like, right. Randall, that hand to the heart buddy of mine, getting in trouble with the law, that's impossible. He would never put himself in a situation like that. Right, right, and 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 most times I did. It's not that I couldn't get into them. I I just did everything in my power to avoid them. Yeah, getting in those situations. But 
that one was just, I mean, a lot of people forget that it started with a girl being grabbed by her neck. Like, that's that's the part sometimes in the story that we forget to emphasize is that we were simply seeing something done wrong, and we moved in that direction. <laughs> we were just like, that that is that doesn't seem right. Like, I don't understand why a girl that probably weighs less than 120 pounds can get grabbed by her neck by a law enforcement officer. Jarring. Because she was too funny, because she was swinging on another person. There's so many ways to subdue a person where you don't grab them by the neck. Oh, and a but, small person at that. A person that you outweigh for sure. Right. I mean, I mean, there's a wrist, there's a hand, there's, you know, there's arms, there's, there's other things that are grabbable that you know don't threaten someone's life. So I just think for us as black men, we saw that and was like, oh my God, what is he doing? And it's right in front of us. You gotta be kidding me. This is broad daylight. So, and everything else, you know, all this stuff happening in daytime. And um, I don't know, I think now I'm, I'm kind of, I was kind of moving past it. You know I me, mean? I shake a lot of things off and I, you know, I can either make jokes or certain things, but when everything kind of resurfaced with Black Lives Matter movement with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and, and now we have more, I, I feel like we're, we're having more Richard Brooks. And I mean, it's just, there's so many decisions where people are debating life, which is like crazy, right? Like we're debating on if somebody should or should not die based off things that other people don't have to worry about, you know, running away. That's not punishable by death. You know, you know, and, being unarmed, or, being, you know, being unarmed and running away. Yeah. Being unarmed. I mean, getting choked out. I mean, like, I mean, I just don't understand what, like, say you choke him out and he lives. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is that does that mean this is what should work? Is what you should be doing? Dang. Well, I mean, but obviously. We, so we've been talking for about an hour now about you know issues, civil rights, all this stuff going. Obviously, you have a stake in this as a black man. How has attending an HBCU like Texas Southern? kind of helped you grow? I think for me at HBCU, I think you develop a different type of uh, close-knit community where a lot of people that you go to school with have faced some of the same things that you faced in life. A lot of those experiences are shared, whereas somebody else might ask you, hey, how was that for you? Like, you looking at somebody like, yeah, I already know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's just, you are from the same types of backgrounds and uh, and not, not all exactly the same. Obviously, you know, people, I had friends that came from all different parts of the country to come to Texas Southern, but it wasn't too far-fetched for us to understand each other's stories and uh, our backgrounds and our, our lives. And I had a professor that understood that too. They understood that, hey, I got to be hard on you because I know it's going to be tough for you out there. To, to prove your talent, your capabilities. So I got to enforce that in you now so that when you get out there, you're not shell-shocked. But I don't know. I think when you're sitting around a group of people who genuinely either understand or they want to understand, uh, it's a different type of conversation. Man, we're all, like, fighting to be successful, and some of us are beating stereotypes and generational curses and 
some of us are the first generation college kid and you know but we all were like seemingly in the same fight my freshman year <laughs> was uh the year Barack Obama became president <laughs> no pressure the first time voting ever you know um, <laughs> yeah. at the same time the impact of something like that at HBCU was crazy it was like a concert <laughs> like, it, was, it was crazy I mean experiences like those it's like one where HBCU is like you share that excitement you share the moments that really impact the black community you really felt those at HBCU obviously when you look back on your own experience it's a lot of you know great memories when you were playing at an HBCU what was the game experience like uh, game experience was funny because I never understood how people could like play football and talk so much. Like it was so much trash talk in HBCU football. And I was just like, "How is this even possible?" I, I'm, I'm just trying to concentrate on breathing. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was fun, man. It was funny because my school, Michael Strahan, was probably the most famous by far football player to come out of Texas Southern. But there was a big drought of not so good football happening there. And then you have bigger schools like Texas A&M. They were sucking up all the recruits. And so we had a big task ahead of us as far as making people respect football at Texas Southern again. Um, but when I came in, we had this little talented group of freshmen. And first year was kind of rough. Second year, you know, we started to kind of turn a corner. And I remember, if you, if you know anything about HBCU, the Bears are half the time more famous than football team. <laughs> so, <laughs> drumline man that's that's one of the things yeah, that drumline yeah. taught me yeah drumline was it wasn't too far from the truth like the 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 bands were the things that people were most drawn to if the teams weren't weren't that good you know so we had to kind of change that perspective and my junior year we ended up winning a conference championship and it was like it was crazy to, to watch the shift, like, okay, man, they got a good band, they got a good football team, too. We got a couple reasons to go to this game now. So, it was really cool to see that shift, you know, because there was a lot working against us. Texas was a hotbed for a lot of people around the country to come get good quality football players. And a lot of times, HBCUs are kind of at the bottom of that list as far as what guys choose to spend their four years. Yeah. Um... So, and and but you with this uh, in this environment, I mean, we're we're seeing a lot of players now. Mikey Williams in basketball being one of them, considering like strongly considering going to an HBCU instead of you know a PWI, uh, predominantly white institution. So he's taking his flourishing career, and he might be taking it to an HBCU like when he's at he's near the top of his class. Is it on him to make that shift to an HBCU to help the system out? Or is it the HBCU system's job to sell him on going to an HBCU in order to, you know, open up, open up opportunities for the HBCUs to, you know, get more TV contracts and things like that? I think it's, it could be a little bit of both. Like I, said, I mean, this is decades, man. I mean, like, you got, I mean, and I can only speak, from a football standpoint of what I know is that, you know, greats like Walter Payton, Jerry Rice attended HBCUs, but that was before TV became, you know, a monster for college football, right? Like that was before things really took off. So exposure, big crowds, those things are attractive, man. So 
the experience that a kid wants to have for I can't I can't say what it what it should and shouldn't be. That's up to that kid. But I know that I was really sold on going to like a Florida or that's I mean that's what we saw on TV. It was awesome. You know, crowds going crazy, big atmosphere. Yeah. And the money, you know, that they put into their programs, just living it up, seemingly, right? Mm-hmm. But um, the day, where are you going to really make your dreams come true? That could be anywhere. I think that's what the charge is for those those individual kids. Like, if you feel like HBCU is a good fit for you, check it out. But explore all your options, right? Because you could be great coming out of anywhere. And HBCUs, they do have a, a duty to, to sell themselves, but... At the end of the day, the ones that are supposed to be there are going to be there. That's right. I do. I do think we need to put them more in the forefront, like the HBCU programs. We need. To, we do need to put them more in the forefront because there's a lot of great greatness that comes out of HBCUs. So I do. I do think we need to promote that more. Because I mean, my school, uh, Texas Southern. I mean, it's one of the best pharmacy schools in the country. But I mean, how much do you hear that though? No. Yeah. Nobody really pays attention to that, do they? Sometimes, you know, and, it, and sports has a way of overshadowing some things. You know, so <laughs> sometimes we need to use that platform to draw more attention to, you know, and like you said, get more of the HBCUs in that national spotlight so that people can become more and more aware because a lot of times what people knew about in the 80s, 90s, isn't the same thing as what people know about now. Back then, you didn't have to really show HBCUs. You had some of the greatest athletes ever come out of your schools and some of the greatest politicians and some of the greatest lawyers, and you had those kind of people coming out of those places. So you didn't have to sell them as much as you do now. But we do. We got to get back on our job. We got to promote these places. Again, you need, you need that green, though. You need that green to do it. I feel like you do. You do you need, you need the funding? You need more people to um to draw more awareness to, making sure they have the funding to do that. You need to strengthen your alumni, making sure they get out and they can give back. Because I, I know that's what I. I had always seen at a lot of these places, like when my brother did his college visits, you always saw alumni coming back and giving back and feeding back into those programs. So that's one thing we'd have to, you know, that's that's a whole other thing. That's like, that's a that's a long road to go down. But, you know, you do have to, to kind of feed back into where you come from. Yeah, that's true. I guess one of, one of my final questions relating to this, knowing what you know now, knowing what you've experienced, going to... Yeah. USC and seeing how that program is run going to Texas and Arizona state for your brother and kind of getting a feel of that. If you had the choice between a bigger program, like say Texas and Texas Southern, which experience do you think you would enjoy more? Texas Southern university. And this is why, like now if I would have went back and told my 17 year old stuff that he probably slapped me, but <laughs> So you're like, what? You know, Big Town, Austin, DK Royal Stadium, or more Stadium? No way, bro. But when I look at the life that I was able to kind of forge out of Texas Southern and the relationships that I built there, you can't really replace that. I went and pledged the fraternity and just the, the amazing bond I had with those guys. I have a lot of my classmates' phone number. I can't say I would have had that at the University of Texas. Now, if all goes well, and the only way I can see Texas being like, place I'd be like, wow, I'm glad I went here knowing what I know now is if there's an NFL career that comes out of it or, you know, something big like that. But for the life that I'm currently living and the purpose that I'm currently walking in, 
I just can't imagine if I didn't go to Texas Southern. That's amazing. That's amazing. Randall, it's been a joy talking to you. We definitely need to do that more. And once this whole COVID thing is over, I'm definitely going to Indianapolis and chilling with you for sure. Yeah, bro. We got to, we got to link back up. The Rand and Dan show is, is rebooting. Rebo- <laughs> it's in development again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Randall. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you old, man. I had no idea. All right, man. Talk to him, man. Uh, be safe, man. I'm praying for uh, you and Sam. Praying up to your dad. And uh, no, love you, dude. Thanks, man. Thanks. I love you, too. Well, that does it for this podcast. Thank you again to Randall Newsom for coming on to talk about HBCUs, athlete activism, and his experience with law enforcement. And thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Warming the Bench on iTunes and follow us on Spotify. Also follow us on Twitter at Tilt Sports and be on the lookout for other projects on the Tilt's YouTube channel. This is Warming the Bench with Daniel Tran, signing off. We'll be right back.